1: Go to TrustArk.com slash Nimity dash free dash trial.
2: You're listening to Serious Privacy by TrustArk. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbarth and Kay Royal.
1: The 25th of May, 2018 will be a day that is forever action to my memory. It is a day I had been working towards for well over seven years by the time it arrived. And with me, thousands and thousands of others. For those of you who don't remember, it is the day the GDPR entered into application this week two years ago. And what other topic could we therefore discuss in today's Serious Privacy episode than the first official GDPR review that should have been out this week? Which are the lessons learned after two years of working with the GDPR and two years of enforcing the GDPR? You will get both the US and the European perspective, and we have a very special guest joining our conversation. My name is Paul Breitbart.
3: And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of bringing a very special guest to you, the man that is responsible for the podcast, responsible for Paul and myself being at Trust Arc, responsible for basically everything great in the world. And that is our CEO, Chris Babel. And I can't tell you how delighted I am to be able to have him on a podcast and shoot all kinds of unexpected questions at him since we're an unscripted conversation. But we all know that the first question is going to be an unexpected personal question. So Chris, I have a good one for you this morning.
2: I can hardly wait, Kay.
3: We all hear the phrase, out of the mouths of babes. What is one piece of wisdom you have learned from a child?
2: One piece of wisdom that I've learned for a child. I think the most interesting thing, and I have three kids that are no longer kind of that same child. They're more teenagers. So you lose it a little bit. You lose it a little bit when they get that old. But what's cool about kids is just kind of their unbridled optimism and wow with like things that they see that are very ordinary in the world. You know, like I'll never forget my middle son. He'd seen snow a bunch of times on the ground, but the first time he saw it coming out of the air, he was just dumbfounded. Like, what is that? (laughs) And to see little kids like put together things that are kind of ordinary, that as we get older, we just, you know, it's just, you don't even think about it. But to see that light bulb go off for the first time, that's, I think, incredibly cool about little kids.
3: That is awesome. Paul, what about you? Wisdom from a child.
1: For me, it's hard. I have no children, and I have only a few friends with children so far uh, that I don't see too often. So I don't speak with children quite a lot, to be honest.
3: What was your wisdom as a child then? Anything you remember?
1: I don't know. <laughs> I probably was a smart ass, but I don't recall any, any <laughs> wisdoms. Well, um, I will
3: say that I was going to, when my daughter was three, she was sitting in the backseat of my car. We were leaving, I don't know, a dance practice or something, and it turned out the headlights on my car didn't work. And I talk to myself. I'm sure that surprises both of you. But I also answer myself. So the lights didn't work, but it turned out bright did. And I went, Well, there we go. The lights don't work, but the brights work. So and as we were driving, a person, of course, flashed their bright lights at me. And I'm like, Sorry, dude, I got no choice. It's bright lights or nothing. And out of the back seat, my three year old goes I said, I have no choice. My daughter goes, You do have a choice, Mama. You always have a choice. You just might not like
1: <laughs> it. And I was uh, like That's pretty clever.
3: Yeah, there was the whole looking over my shoulder going, oh my goodness gracious, this is going to be a trip. All right, with that, we will dive straight into the GDPR because when this podcast launches, it will be the day after GDPR turns officially two years old. And it has been a wild, wild two years,
1: absolutely. Yes, Kate, it has been wild indeed. You are perfectly right there. Before we look at the past two years of how GDPR applied. Let me just bring you back to the moment that the European Commission announced the GDPR. What were the original intentions of the European Commission with this new set of legislation? And I've got two clips from the press conference of Commissioner Vivian Redding, who at the time was the responsible commissioner for justice and also for the data protection portfolio. She starts with the explanation of what the GDPR exactly intends to do and why it is so important.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, we have done it. Today the European Commission adopted a comprehensive reform on the EU's data protection rule. With this reform, the European Union will create a real single digital market. Accessible both for companies and for consumers. It will make Europe more competitive in this field and it will make Europe an international standard setter in terms of modern data protection rules.
1: Next, she explains the main pillars of the new legislation.
4: A single set of European rules on data protection valid everywhere across the European Union. So one rule for the 27 member states and for the 500 million people. One data protection authority for one company. A one-stop shop and one authorization for the whole of the European
1: Union. This was January 2012, so well over eight years ago. And now let's take it to the conversation with Chris. Kay, why don't you kick us off?
3: On it. Let's do it. So, Chris... We would like to explore your expectations when you first heard of the GDPR being proposed. Now, you might have had some behind-the-scenes knowledge of working with privacy, but when the GDPR was first proposed, do you recall what your first thoughts were about it? Like, oh, wow, this is going to change the world, or oh, no, here we go again, anything?
2: The most interesting, interesting things and I was thinking back to it was the thing I remember kind of being surprised about with GDPR. Like the first big aha moment was the realization that no one understood it. And so at TrustArk back then, I think we hadn't changed the name, trustee, we were running a few privacy conferences that were focused on specific issues that we didn't think people were addressing. So I think the first one was 2014 and 15 on IoT and in 2016 was on risk. And we did those in the summer, but EU Safe Harbor had gone away uh, in October of 15. And we had, had planned already in advance because GDPR had just been ratified an event that was, I think, early December of 15, if I recall correctly, in San Francisco.
1: And I remember... Yeah, that's, that's more or less right. I remember the lead up to
2: that and and having like reporters even want to come and people coming to want to speak. And... I think we didn't say it was GDPR specific, but it, it, it wasn't all its content. But we t- talked about you privacy was the headline and everybody came. And the only thing they wanted to talk about was safe harbor going away and was the new thing going to happen. And we put together this event and this content and these speakers and wrapped it all together. in I think a very compelling way, but people just weren't focused on it at all. All they wanted to talk about was safe harbor going away. And when you looked at the two at the time, it was like, this is a small thing, safe harbor. I mean, it's important that it went away and we have to figure out what's what's next. And of course that turned into Privacy Shield and you, know, you still had contractual clauses and you still had um, binding corporate rules, but like that was the big topic on European privacy. And when you look back at that with hindsight and you kind of weigh those two and see what's happened the last, you know, five years, it's just shocking that We couldn't even talk about GDPR in the way that we'd wanted to because it wasn't on anyone's mind. The realization of what was going to come wasn't there. I think people probably, Paul, like you that had worked on it for years before that, recognized it. But even amongst Europeans, I don't think there was the recognition of the balance of how important these two were. So that was my first big aha moment, if you will.
1: No, not at all. I think in in, in Europe, while all of us working behind the scenes on getting the GDPR done, whether there were the people from the European Commission or from uh, the Council of Ministers or in the European Parliament or all the lobbyists uh, pro or against uh, more stringent rules in the GDPR, I think all of us after four years were pretty fed up with the GDPR as it was. (laughs) Um, And we just wanted to get it over with and just agree on the text let's get it done and and start working with it because we've been talking about what it should be for so many years there were over 3000 amendments uh during the uh, the, the legislative process in the European Parliament plus another thousand Uh, for the Law Enforcement Directive. We had worked through all of them. We had worked through, I don't know how many sessions of the Working Party 29, providing guidance and further guidance and more detailed guidance to the European European Commission on what we thought that the GDPR should look like, uh, spoken in countless sessions, public, in private, with the European Parliament And we just wanted to make sure that it was all over. And this was not all me. I mean, I only played a very minor role. My colleagues at the Dutch DPA did a lot more on the GDPR than I did. But it was fascinating to to live through those times. Um, And especially if you now see that some of the things that came up during brainstorms with data protection commissioners in a horrible convention center in Brussels during one of those Working Party 29 meetings, that you see that some of those sentences are now part of the GDPR. Um, that's still fun.
3: Oh, that is awesome. Is is making law behind the scenes a lot like it is in the U.S. too? Is it pretty much the same everywhere? It's ugly? You don't want to see it?
1: Well, I never I never did a U.S. legislative process. <laughs> it's ugly. Not, not, not with Congress. I, I did, did attend some of the sessions on the Privacy Shield at the time. And also that was pretty ugly. Yes, you, you don't want to know how laws are made and you don't always want to question why is a text like this and why is a certain decision taken like that. It is it is obvious that there are compromises in the GDPR and that some text should have been different. There are also still errors in the GDPR that should be uh, should be changed at some point in the future. For one, I don't understand why Article 30 on the records of processing inventory, one of the most important accountability issues, why it doesn't include the legal basis for processing, whereas Article 13 and 14 on um, on the information you need to provide to the data subject does include the legal basis. They, they should be a mirror of each other, and they're not. And I think that's just an oversight. But.
3: They, they should be. Chris, what do you think is the most impactful article of the GDPR? And you may not be able to narrow it down to one, but which one do you think really has an impact? One through, f-
2: one through 50.
3: <laughs> you know, we have a client that has every single article memorized.
2: That's not me.
3: <laughs> right? And apparently that's what he likes to do when he's talking to a privacy person um, is to test their knowledge. And so he'll arbitrarily throw out article numbers to see if you know them. I can't memorize the article so I told him one time the one that really got me was 102. I really couldn't see why article 102 was
1: in place. He went and looked it up. There is no 102. <laughs> The thing that
2: I think was most interesting for me about the GDPR, because I, you know, I've been in the security industry for 10 years, right? And I got to see the security industry grow up and I got to see it grow up from where you were realizing that hacking might be a problem. And you saw the first security devices, like literally the first firewall sold in the mid 90s, all the way through to all this garage of security technology that then needed to kind of be pulled together to really manage a good security program, and while we'll never fully be there, I got to see that process evolve. And you know, the reason I jumped really the end of 2009, beginning of 2010, over to the privacy side of things is that I saw a lot of the similar needs in privacy, where security was a lot of you know thinking about locking down and securing the data. Privacy is a lot more of like, how can I use this data? How can I manipulate the data? How can I share the data to further my business while providing good experiences and doing it in kind of a trusted, safe way? So a lot of the same themes. And when I made that jump over, I thought that we were going to be at the start of kind of the adoption of technology. And candidly, I was wrong. Uh, It was too early. You know, you saw adoption of Things like the ad choices icon in the U.S. and Europe to deal with behaviorally targeted ads. You saw the beginning of cookie consent and kind of scanning to see what cookies were running and things like that. But, but this Judy bear question of what's the most important you know, part of it, I actually think the whole thing is. Because what it really caused was a fundamental shift in thinking about how important this is to get right. And that there was going to kind of come with this an enhanced level, not just of the regulatory scrutiny, which certainly has happened, and you've seen fines. And I'm certain we'll we'll talk about some of those. And we'll, you know, a lot of people didn't think the Europeans were ever going to find; they've never fined before. They don't find much. It's not going to happen, is what I heard a lot. And clearly, that's mm-hmm. been proven wrong. But I think more importantly was that it changed kind of the the mindset. I mean, I, I when I talk to companies today, I'm sure they're worried about regulatory scrutiny and maybe a fine potential, but They're more worried about the bad press of something that happens and brand damage that comes with an inquiry, or they're more worried about kind of, you know, their B2B interactions with other companies and kind of this mutual holding each other accountable to get this right on behalf of, you know, eventual end consumers, right? And so there's almost a bigger pressure on the GDPR in this peer group type way amongst businesses that I think has been interesting because, you know, and last but not least, obviously... You know, consumers had new rights and abilities to understand their 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 data and it kind of got them more engaged in owning their own privacy. And and certainly I think that is transferred over to other laws like the CCPA in California and you know a whole host of them that were at least being debated in the US and now a little bit on hold with COVID, but I think we'll come back. And so I don't think when I think about it, I don't think about a specific requirement that caused the most. I think the GDPR in total caused a different set of thinking, both, again, regulatory-wise, peer group-wise, how you interact with consumers, consumer engagement and owning their own privacy and their own data, that that's really what has kind of come out of this and then pushed to other countries or states to follow bits and pieces that were, you know, relevant to, to that jurisdiction. So I think that's actually the most important thing of the GDPR is because it caused the mindset shift really kind of on a you know, global scale.
1: I like it. Do you think that also the company's risk appetite or or risk approach has changed with GDPR coming into effect?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's still really evolving. I mean, there are still companies that are woefully under ready for GDPR and that's probably a horrific thing to state.
1: (laughs) But we see them all every day.
2: (laughs) All the listeners two years later, but if if you're just getting started in listening to this on your GDPR program, you know I hate. Well, maybe I. You're happy that I'm telling you this. You're not alone. <laughs> There's still a whole host of companies that really haven't started on any of these things, and it's not because they were formed yesterday. It's because that's just the priorities and how they've gotten to them. And and I guess I would say that isn't surprising. I mean, let's look at either other privacy laws. HIPAA in the U.S. took. 10 to 15 years for a lot of companies to get there and be enforced and drive the clarity that really got people operating it kind of their, their programs to meet it in a structured, robust, automated, reliable way. Right. And, you know, back when I was in my security days, I, you know, I got to live through a whole host of the implications to security from Sarbanes-Oxley and and it took years to get that right, to get it defined right. Paul, to your point of like, wow, look, even in the law and in all the interpretations, here's all these things that still are inconsistent. Right. I mean, it's two years later and we're not through all those. And that's OK. It's it's evolving. And also, I think there's going to be things that come up that cause it to evolve going forward. Like, I think if you look at the COVID-19 health implications, right, of, yes, the fact that I took a test and tested positive, I want to keep private. That's my data, uh, you know. Uh, but uh, gosh, everyone that you work next to really wants to know. And so how you balance the things of individual privacy versus like more global health issues is going to cause people to rethink a whole host of these things. And there will be future things that come up that cause thinking to change on a lot of these items as well. But yeah, to me, I think it was the first big stake in the ground that caused a mindset shift. And that's probably um, one of the biggest legacies of GDPR.
3: I think, and do you... I I love the conversation. There's so much you said that resonates, but I, I love the conversation about how it's going to evolve. And one thing that really stands out to me, and Paul and I have discussed this on some of our podcasts before, is how the GDPR will evolve versus how U.S. law will evolve, such as the CCPA, the ink wasn't even dry on the paper and the hash marks before it was already being amended and constantly amended and four amendments and now we have a ballot initiative coming up. It will never be settled, it doesn't seem, but yet the GDPR, it seems like the way it's evolving is through guidance. You're not seeing a lot of let's take it back and amend it. Is there a fallacy in that or is there a reassurance in that European law will remain European law?
2: Yeah, and Paul, you're probably best suited amongst us, but I'll throw in a few high level points. I mean I think it's a tough comparison to compare to CCPA because like the California law, and certain people know this, but not everyone may is, you know, we have some very goofy things in California where there's this ballot initiative process where if it gets on the ballot through people kind of signing and saying they support this ballot initiative and then gets voted on by the people and gets approved, then the only way that it can change is either A, through another ballot initiative, which are very hard and expensive to do, or B, through a two-thirds majority of the legislature. And that two thirds bar makes it very hard for any ballot initiative to be changed. And so Alistair McTaggart had done the ballot initiative. He'd gotten it through. It was going to be on the ballot. It was going to pass. And in a pretty hurried way, that law was passed to take it off the ballot. Right. And so that law was put in place intentionally in a hurried way with a plan for it to be amended many times. And I think, you know, from what Paul said earlier, well, the plan yeah. And, you know, but 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 comparing that to GDPR, where, you know, Paul and many, many, many others spent four plus years, you know, really working hard to get it as right as you could the first time. The reality of the CCPA was it was put together in a matter of months to meet a deadline of taking that ballot initiative off. And, you know, if you're following it, even then, Mick Taggart has been a bit concerned about some of the things that have been changed um, and that they are not as strong. And yeah, we're going to have another ballot initiative here in California at the November election. So.
3: Yeah. And if he's listening, we want him on our show. (laughs) Throwing it out there yet again. We want him on our show. He's
2: he's an incredible person to talk to and understand the history behind everything that he's done. But so I think they're fundamentally different in how they came into being. Right. And I think that's an important element to know and the differences, but I think in either case, what you're seeing, regardless of the structure of how it's happening, you're seeing the evolution to meet an ongoing need and trying to drive that balance between kind of the things that businesses want to drive forward their growth and provide better customer, you know, consumer business to business experiences and kind of consumers coming and saying, "Mm, my line's more over here rather than over there and kind of the pushback through consortiums to, to to arm wrestle those things to the ground. So whether it's through additional guidance, the GDPR more model in terms of updates, or whether it's amendments, 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 and to the law, which you'll see more of because they're candidly required by the initial bill. We still don't have what the law should be for employee data or B2B data, right? And it was supposed to be done a long time ago and they amended it to say we have till the end of 2020. And I think if you look at what's happening with COVID and the fact that we want our legislators focused on different things right now, candidly, that are bigger issues that will probably be a bit delayed. And, and that's okay, but they're just different methodologies to get at the same point, which is all these laws need to evolve with the times.
1: Right. Yes, I fully agree with that. And and indeed, the the processes are, are quite different because in California, you are obviously just dealing with the California legislature, which would be comparable to one national member state parliament um, instead of the European Commission, the Council of Ministers and and all their civil servants, uh, the European Parliament, some forty plus national parliaments uh, that also want to have their say. If you uh, count both the lower and the upper houses of the national parliaments, that all are involved in that legislative process. And then the the, the massive amount of of lobbyists and interest groups uh, around it, whether that is corporate interests, um, we've seen lots of lobbying. Um, from the likes of Google and Apple and Microsoft and Facebook and 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 all the big companies, uh, big tech companies that you can think of, both from the US but also from from here in Europe. And then, of course, we had all the uh, civil society groups who are uh, uh, pro stricter uh, privacy protections, who also uh, found their way to the Parliament and to the Commission and the Council for further lobbying. We had the data protection authorities, which obviously wanted to get involved, and we had foreign governments, the US government. Uh, uh, impacted the uh, text of the GDPR quite a lot. If you look back to early December, late November 2011, a draft of the GDPR leaked online. And that was a deliberate leak. Um, we this, this is strategy from the European Commission. It will never be admitted, but we all know that this was deliberately leaked to give a sense of what GDPR would look like. And if you compare that version from from late 2011 with the final version that was adopted. Uh, on 25 May 20, or 25 January 2012, when the European Commission uh, released their proposals, you see that some of the, uh, the, the the more harmful provisions in the GDPR, at least from a US perspective, that they are gone. Uh, and it was admitted also later that that was a US lobby who who changed, which changed the the provisions of the GDPR before it was even officially released. So you can see what the impact of uh, of the legislative process is. I do not expect GDPR to change anytime soon. Um if you look at the the review documents from the European Council and also from the European Data Protection Board it is clear that there are shortcomings and that there are things that need to be improved, but also both say well we uh we don't think this is the right time already to start opening up GDPR again. It's it's a can of worms if we if we start to do that. Let's take a few more years, let's get more experience and then do a review which is thorough and good, based on real experience instead of just two years, and focus the legislative attention first on finalizing e-privacy, because we haven't succeeded to do that yet. And that was supposed to also enter into application at the same time as GDPR.
3: Agreed. Was there anything... I know you said GDPR put a stake in the ground, Chris, and I want to move on to how do you think that's influenced laws around the world, because we know it has. Was there anything unexpected in the GDPR that when you saw it, you were like, really? Why that?
2: Well, I would just say, you know, both from kind of my personal reaction in, in first looking at it as well as like the endless conversations with customers, prospects, you know, the thing that kept going back again and again and again was just the fine potential. Right. Ah. And, and, you know, you could get into all sorts of details of, wow, I was surprised that, you know, I can, you know, have a dog and not a cat, you know, to make up some, You know, and there's there's all sorts (laughs) of things like that in there that people were surprised by this or that. And wow, this affects my industry in this way. And I want to, you know, figure out how to lobby for it or whatever. But the thing that just kept elevating back was wow, the potential for a fine was just so shockingly large. And yes, it went down a percent from the initial conversation, but it is still so shockingly large that I think that's still the headline that got repeated again and again for, for good reason, right? And I think that uh, there were a couple parts to that that I thought were interesting. One is, you know, some of the enforcements that you see are fine related, but others are actually sometimes less talked about where companies are being asked to either delete data or, you know, exit kind of operations in the way that they're doing things if they don't have kind of the right reason for having the data or using the data for that purpose. And And candidly, those are the things that are more catastrophic to a business. It's like stop operations here. Or delete your data set if you're in the advertising space, right? I mean, like that's your lifeblood. And I think what's talked about still so often is like, oh, it was a fine of X dollars or Y dollars. And it's it's really not just those that need to be talked about. It's the implications for your business because being asked to stop is... We're impactful. (laughs) Stop in Europe. You can't
3: do business in this country anymore, in this region anymore. That's pretty impactful. And I will say, and this goes back to something you said earlier, when leading up to the GDPR, and I think some of the surveys we did actually showed this as well. And when I saw the, the survey outcomes, I was like, that actually that's true that's what I've seen or yeah that makes sense was that up until the GDPR went effective it was people were talking fines 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 CFOs were always isn't this going to go away once the GDPR went effective it's almost like we saw it flip and company was like oh reputation I need to make sure my clients trust me I need to make sure consumers trust me I need to make sure we're doing the right thing. The fine part is still there because Europe is finding, and, of course, the, the other implications it has. But it was interesting how we saw that flip from it seems like the fines were the boogeyman in the attic that people were scared of and then it flipped to, you know what, we really need to do the right thing. Do you think the GDPR seriously contrib- contributed to a culture shift in how companies treat data and think about it?
2: Well, I guess to me, there's two parts of kind of maybe that. The, the first part is when a lot like this gets on the books and companies need to do something, right? Uh, both figure out what it is, what it means, how to apply it to their business, how to achieve the objectives that are out there and then do it in a sustainable recurring type way. That all takes money and budgets. And so I think a lot of what you heard about initially from the fine perspective conversation was candidly a part of businesses trying to figure out how to fund the stuff internally. Right. And the easiest way to do that is to point to concrete risk. So, you know, X amount of business times 4% equals this. This is the fine potential. Therefore, the fact that I'm asking for a budget that's 1% of that number right. is teeny. And and, you know, this was it shouldn't have been unexpected.
3: And yet still not getting it in most yeah, cases.
2: but but But, you know. <laughs> any of these things. And I'll rewind back to my early days of security, right? Like it was impossible to get a budget for that first firewall because when they first became realized that you needed one or, you know, network security scanning or application scanning or endpoint security and all these things like, you know, when you're starting in a space like that, the money historically had been spent on hiring either, you know, legal advice or consulting advice. It had not been spent on implementing or thinking through a technology that you deployed and grow over time to manage the requirements both in gdpr as you get further into them or other laws globally and how it works to kind of mesh these laws globally so that you have the ability to do an effort once and have it meet multiple requirements right and kind of that new first spend in anything in it is hard and the easiest way to justify that is to say again here's the fine potential and therefore that's an ultimate high-end risk number we have and then you, know, you prorate some spend according to what you think that risk is applied to you. And, and that's how kind of IT decisions are, are made. And so I think that's why you saw a lot of that conversation. I think the reputation one was a bit harder because it was very easy to say, well, to challenge the assumptions, right? And, and you go back and you look and the, the closest equivalent would be looking at some of the big security data breaches that you've had. And hearing companies say like, well, we had this big breach. I think, you know, I heard once that the Target CEO basically said it took me years to get back the trust post that breach, right, of kind of consumers. But that's hard to put a number on. So I think the first wave of conversation was really both the internal conversation of trying to get budget spilling over into the public debate in discord. And then the second part of this is the realization that it's really both. Both of those are risks for you. And depending on who you are and what happens and, you know, what action you took that caused the issue to come back to you. You know, it could be solely about reputation and that could be the most damaging. It could be that defines the most damaging. But I think um, that's why you saw that sort of transition a little bit over time is because then once you start getting the budget, it's easier to say, well, incrementally, we need to do this, this and this. But it's that starting budget for that initial (laughs) hump of work to say, what the heck is this thing? And how do I start? That's the hard part to go get funded internally inside a business.
1: I think the, the, the one example that we have um, where you can really put a number on, uh, on reputation uh, and the, the, the value of or the cost of a data breach uh, for, for reputation is the Verizon takeover of Yahoo where the original number was, I believe, well over $1 billion. And the, the final number that Verizon paid was several hundreds of millions of dollars lower when Yahoo had to come clean that, in fact, they had a data breach. And oh, in a second round, oh, yes, it was not just a part of our customers. It was all of our customers who were involved in the data breach. And you saw the number go down with every further further report on that data breach being released. And that was not specifically GDPR related, but you see how impactful uh, bad publicity can be following a breach.
3: Yeah, when you were talking about companies that, that had to think about doing privacy and or security and way back when their first costs were in getting legal advice or getting consulting advice to what is it you need to do, TrustArc was a big part of that. And we usually don't talk a lot about our products in here, so I'm not going that direction. But we were a large part of working with companies to figure out what it is they need to do. And part of that was because we've been in the privacy industry since there was such a thing as a privacy industry. Maybe not 50 years ago, but a long time. Do you think that that experience in privacy really helps us be able to absorb and relate more to GDPR than we're seeing new professionals come into the field that are learning privacy straight out of university, such as I've got law students in privacy class now. They're going to graduate knowing more about privacy than I ever knew 20 years ago. I think that's what's
2: really interesting, whether it was how the security industry evolved, like the first CISOs learned on the job. Right. And now you can have security IT classes in a whole host of different ways, online, offline, in university, what have you. And the same thing's happening with privacy. You know, if you would have rewound, you know, 10 years ago, right? How many law schools had classes on privacy and now you can come out of certain law schools and like privacy is a focus that you have spent many, many classes on, not just the, hey, here's a class that covers four different things and privacy is one of them, right? And I think as the profession has taken off and the needs have taken off and the kind of blending of privacy issues with ethical decision making and like all sorts of you know other data governance, what have you, is all coming together to be something that people are focused on. Now, you know, some of us that have been around and at it for a long time, we've learned on the job without kind of the university training and Others coming out now, like, man, they can hit the ground running in a way with a set of knowledge that we certainly didn't have when we started, (laughs) which is fantastic. (laughs) But I think in all things, it's interesting to see the blend of those because sometimes with experience, you've seen and tried and done things that seem great on paper, but work horrifically operationally and you have that experience. The flip is also true that with a fresh mindset where you haven't seen something and failed at it, you sometimes have a lot more creativity because you don't have the baggage of experience. And that's what I think it's, you know, whether it's this industry, whether it was security before that I dealt with, whether it's hundreds of different industries that consistent blend of, you know, even in engineering, like the amount of education you can get to become an engineer in college and master's and PhD studies is unbelievable compared to computer science, you know, 40 years ago, which didn't really exist in university. Right. Right. But kind of how these things balance to, get both newly creative minds minted that have zero experience and are willing to try anything and kind of sometimes look at the same problem we've had and have a unique idea that was staring us in the face and none of us realized versus sometimes that idea of being the most horrific one because operationally it would fail. <laughs> and there's reasons to, to go that path. That's kind of the beauty of, I think, what's happening when you have more of a mature or maturing, I should say, not mature, profession. Um, with so many people interested is it brings kind of super smart minds that focus on it out of school that kind of would have had to land in it after bouncing through other things 10 years ago to now it's a draw of some of the most talented people you've got coming through. That to me is a super exciting kind of thing that's changed along with the whole evolution of the space.
3: That people are purposefully choosing to aim their career towards privacy as opposed to falling into it blindly through luck. And finding out they have a they have a, uh, a talent for it, which you really do need to have a talent for privacy. So what would you say for, in GDPR really, really brought this out. So I, I want to make sure that people understand I am relating this to GDPR. What do you say makes a good privacy professional? What traits?
2: I think one of the most important things is being able to put yourself in other shoes, right, in kind of a very open way. So think about, like, we're all consumers. We can sometimes get hung up because you're working for your business and you're trying to solve your business, you know, team's needs and they want to use data in this way. Well, can you kind of truly take that hat off and act like you're just Joe on the street coming and in, interacting with that business and just think about it like a more like like a non-privacy person, like a normal human. <laughs> so can you get out of your own skin and take different perspectives? Can you try to do that same thing with like a regulatory hat on, right? I think that's a general important trait for anyone in business, whether it's negotiating something with someone else, what have you, like, can you fit yourself into their shoes and try to figure out what their motivations are? And I think that's incredibly important here because you have kind of a uniquely different set of constituencies, right? You have the business, you have its customers, you have business partners, and um, you have regulator view and all of these things kind of come together to define something. And of course, like the regulator view in Europe is different than U.S. and California is different than, you know, uh, Brazil. And, And that different mindset and kind of what's behind it all is really important. You know, knowing the law is important. Studying those things is important. But it's a unique skill to be able to get out of your own skin and have a different perspective and truly try to do that in a neutral, like normal person way. It's very hard to do. It's very hard to do.
3: And it is. And uh, I truly believe the GDPR has really proven that point to a lot of professionals, not just the fact of how many professionals were anticipated to be needed for DPOs and how the number of registered DPOs far outpaced what had been anticipated, uh, the number of DPOs registered. So I do believe that the GDPR has been as you said, hugely impactful in a number of ways on companies, on privacy, on country laws, on professionals, everything.
1: So I think there's the Paul, it looks like there's a question burning for you, Paul. Yeah, let's take a look at enforcement because um, (laughs) I was trying to avoid enforcement. Oh, no, enforcement is fun. Sorry, that was my (laughs) former regulator had speaking. But enforcement is important. And Chris already mentioned very rightly in in my view that it is not all about the fines. Right. um, Because a suspension of processing can be much more impactful. But if you look at... At the numbers, there has been well over 115 million euro in cases uh, of in fines so far. We've seen well over 300,000 enforcement cases just in the first year of the GDPR. So uh, my best guess is that we are at somewhere seven, eight hundred thousand by now since the start of the new legal framework. And still, we have lots of people saying, "Well, GDPR is not being enforced. Why should we?" take it seriously. And probably that is just because people are still waiting for the massive fines that are expected out of Ireland in, well, maybe the coming days, the coming weeks uh, for Google, Facebook, Microsoft and, and and all the other tech companies on investigations that have been ongoing for so many years. Chris, what, what are your views? Um, is enforcement that important for GDPR compliance? Will we see companies stepping back from compliance if the law isn't being enforced or will will other peer review options or or uh, civil society groups or class actions or things like that also help towards compliance
2: yeah i think as we talked about earlier the mindset is shifting a little bit from it you know being justified like we have to get it right for the fines and now it's we have to get it right for the brand And the brand includes fines, obviously. But to me, I think all of those things are coming together to provide motivation for businesses to kind of get things right. And again, whether that is the fines, which I I agree with you, I think to me, there's been a lot of talk initially of the European regulators won't enforce. And I look at it and see the data and I'm like, they absolutely have. And it's, you know... A lot of times in that first year in particular, where less about the fines, more about awareness and do this and, you know, provide additional guidance. So I think that you will see over time, the dollar amount for a lot of those start to ramp because if people don't continue to pay attention and listen and focus and see what's happening, the price of each of those will, will go up. I think you also <laughs> will see some bigger ones and we'll see when given the COVID situation we're all in right now and how things have locked down, but, To me, I think fines are an important motivator for business, absolutely, especially when they hit your space, right? Or a company that you know, or even like somebody that you know that's at that company, even if it's a totally different industry, like all of those things trickle back and you hear about them and that then becomes a part of your criteria and risk calculation. Um, But like I said before, I think what's equally important is people are more focused on kind of how they're perceived. Um, what their brand reputation is. And while it may be harder to justify in hard dollar terms, I think we've had enough breaches over time and seen the impact of breaches that kind of any brand damage along these, you know, you didn't handle my data right lines, irrespective of what or why or what regulator it is, are starting to become much more to the forefront. We saw that happen in security you know, there were not fines for a very long time, but the breaches got to be big enough and then the fines became big enough that, you know, it it was the risk of brand damage that caused a lot of the security spend over time and, and fines really came pretty late in the process, at right. least the more substantive ones. And so I think all of these things are drivers. And then likewise, I said, that peer pressure is one that shouldn't be underestimated, right? Because a lot of the value in this data is in working together and sharing it with others. And whether it's like the California law that actually gives you the consumer the ability to say, you know, don't sell my data, right? Which I think is an interesting twist that might be replicated in a whole host of different ways. But, but, but more importantly, just that whole, like, are you compliant with this law? Like, I'm about to buy your product. And before I implement your product, I want you to tell me that you have this solved. Right? right and you're seeing much more of that type of pressure happening as well so I think it's a it's a multifaceted reason that just then becomes a part of the DNA of a company like you wouldn't go to a us company right now and say something like hey, you probably don't worry about Serbanes-Oxley anymore, right? Like you just kind of wing it, right? (laughs) Right. You get to a point over time where it's ingrained and you're focused on the evolution of the law and the guidance and what happens with the technology that underlies it that allows you to do different things. And it becomes just a part of the fabric of how you operate as a business, whether you're big, whether you're small, whether you're in region X or Y or Z or industry X or Y or Z. And that's still happening kind of day in and day out. Fines certainly are a driver in that, but there's a whole host of other things that are as well.
3: Right. And we are coming to the end of our time. Paul, did you have a last question that you wanted to ask Chris, or should we ask Chris if he had something he really wanted to share that we haven't asked him yet?
1: I think I want to look look ahead. Chris, how do you see the future of privacy compliance? Well, I think... You know like
2: you would said I, I would agree with the perspective that gdpr as a law will probably not see things other than that the kind of consistent flow of additional guidance and i think that that model of giving additional guidance is going to be with us for years and years and that's because a there are still a whole host of things that are specific that aren't quite right yet and so through guidance they'll kind of work to amend those things without necessarily cracking that document open because as soon as you crack it open Another five years will happen before it gets, <laughs> gets approved. It's just, it's big, it's difficult, it's hard, so. right? And like you mentioned earlier, the number of parties involved from a European Union perspective make California legislature look easy, which is <laughs> not <laughs> being a king in California. Not sure. <laughs> but on a comparative basis, like, wow, right? But I think what, you know, has kind of gone on hold, like we, we were tracking here in the U.S. a whole host, I think at the peak, it was 1920 different state laws. And discussions about a federal law here in the US, obviously, you've seen GDPR motivate things like Brazilian law, you've seen India continue to be debated, you've seen all sorts of countries or in the US states pick this up and have these discussions. And I think a lot of them are driven by elements of the GDPR that are looked at, that are thought of as something that we need to replicate in other places with, of course, their own unique twists and and tweaks. My guess is that 2020 will be kind of the last year in terms of any of these regulations happening. The lost year. Um, I'm
3: going to keep that.
2: That's understandable, right? Let's just step back and say, like, I haven't left my house to go to the office in eight weeks. And here in California, we're probably another month out before things start opening in San Francisco. And we've done, I think, a relatively good job of, you know, staying in place and and not having high case counts of COVID. But I think that. What it also causes is privacy is still incredibly top of mind. Right. Like if, if you think about and step back for a second, the topic in January and February, the beginning of the year, it was all about the election in the US. Who was going to be the Democratic nominee? COVID hit and you saw people drop out of the race and it ended up being Biden. And like when Bernie Sanders stepped out, like it wasn't the biggest news item of the day it wasn't even close. It was the number of case counts, the number of deaths, what the economy was doing because of the shutdown. And so for this COVID situation to jump, to be that prominent and kind of knock that out of the news was uh, surprising. But what it dragged with it was the conversation on privacy, right. because as people think about what's it take to reopen a business, who can a temperature check? Who can I tell if someone's get sick? How long can I keep this data? When do I destroy it? Do I test every day? Do I just ask questions? Can I actually be, you know, temperature scanning someone's forehead? And how do I do that in state A versus state B versus state C in the US? Are those the same? Are they different? Let alone all these global locations of manufacturing. Like privacy is first and foremost in terms of like, can I open my offices safely? And how do I balance that individual's privacy with kind of get back to work health issues of my entire employee base, right? And so it's interesting to see that while at least in the US, the state laws have decreased, it's almost like we've become more topical in the health front and jumped above some things that we weren't above before, like who the Democratic nominee is in terms of privacy being an issue and kind of this whole COVID crisis. So I think the issues that we're dealing with, the ways that this evolves, the ways that the regulatory frameworks evolve, whether that's you know specific to a certain law, GDPR or otherwise, You know, I think if you're in the privacy space, um, you have a lot of opportunities because the issues aren't going away. They're only becoming more paramount.
1: Absolutely. Excellent. And with that, we conclude another episode of Serious Privacy. If you like our series, please do tell your friends and colleagues about us. And should you have any questions or suggestions, Feel free to reach out via seriousprivacy at trustart.com or via Twitter at Ad podcast privacy. You will find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as Europol B. Let us know any questions that you may have, any guests you would like to hear from, or if you would want to be on the program yourself. Thank you again for listening to Serious Privacy. And until our next episode, goodbye. Bye, y'all.
2: That was Serious Privacy.
1: Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further.
0: Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI.
1: TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost effectively.
0: And here's the kicker protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy driven compliance software.
1: Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArts
0: enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security.
1: Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST-AI, OECD-AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework.
0: If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts.